It's two o'clock on a Monday afternoon and your CEO sends you an email saying she has a media interview on a local TV station in the morning and she wants you to help get her ready. Where would you begin? Hello everyone and welcome to episode 11 of the Resilient Journey podcast sponsored by ClearRisk. I'm your host Mark Hoffman and today I'm joined by one of North America's leading presentation and media trainers, Warren Weeks. Listen as Warren tells us about his Eureka moment and explains the single most important thing that you can do to reach success in a media interview. And Warren explains how media training has evolved over the years and why practicing your interview is always a great idea. We'll start our conversation with Warren Weeks after we hear from my friends at ClearRisk. Navigating changes in the risk landscape can be daunting without access to the right tools. ClearRisk's centralized risk management solution streamlines the process of data collection and analysis, helping customers make impactful decisions and focus on big picture initiatives. ClearRisk provides a highly configurable, easy to use solution that gives our customers the confidence to inform decision-making and proactively optimize risk in their organizations. Effective risk management begins with data you can trust. Learn more at clearrisk.com. Warren, welcome to the program. I'm honored to have you here. Why don't you take a minute or so here and introduce yourself to the listeners? Thanks very much, Mark. Uh, Very happy to be here. My name is Warren Weeks, and I am predominantly a media training coach located just outside Toronto, Canada, and I've been doing this kind of work. Uh, you know, we chatted in the the pre-interview, but I've been in the business about three decades, and I'd say over the past ten years specifically, have really focused uh, almost exclusively in the media training space. So that's pretty much what I spend all my time doing is working with organizations. Um, you know, it used to be just in Canada, but now it's increasingly around the world, helping them to uh, keep their foot out of their mouths when they're speaking to the press. And that's the challenge, isn't it? I mean, I know you like to say that there's two ways to approach a media interview. You can treat it like it matters. You can treat it like it doesn't. And you, you add some other things to that as well. Talk about making it about your audience or making it about yourself. So take us to school here. Explain what you mean by these two different contrasting ways to approach a media interview. This is this I could talk about this for hours. I know I know we don't have that much time, but <laughs> I, I had been doing this kind of work for about I'd say 16 years or so, media training. And there was it was mostly in the early days tactics, right? Strategies, tactics. Here's the phrase, here's how you bridge. Here's how you kind of don't answer the question. And and you could kind of see watching someone do that interview, you could kind of tell that they had just got out of a media training session. And in 1982 and in 1991 and 1998, that was that was that was acceptable. That was kind of like the best there was. And it occurred to me, again, just just marinating in this stuff year after year after year. And I remember exactly where I was in my car. I was driving to, to people who are not around Toronto. This will, this reference won't mean anything, but I'm on the Queensway near a mall called Sherway Gardens, and it was after a session. And you're just you're exhausted because you know you just you give it all, and it's a it's a it's a very exhausting thing when it's done well. Mm-hmm. And I'm driving home, and I had finished the session. I was kind of reflecting on some of the interviews, and I had this. The only thing I can call it is a eureka moment. And all of these years, and these thousands of simulated interviews, and watching people in the press and and just studying this stuff kind of coalesced into this one idea. And I realized 
and it, it seems to me kind of simple and profound at the same time. And it's that if someone does a poor job with their media interview, the, 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 the typical reason is that they treated it like a conversation instead of an interview. And now that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be conversational. I think absolutely it should sound like a conversation. It should sound spontaneous and be engaging and be interesting. But just as we have physical reflexes in our bodies, you know, when you go for your checkup, right? The doctor hits you in the knee with that little reflex mallet and, and your leg pops up. We have, all of us have psychological biological reflexes in our brains. And so when we get into a verbal exchange with someone could be our, our kid's teacher could be the bus driver, could be the barista at Starbucks, could be a reporter. When they start asking questions a certain way, they can elicit a certain response from us. And it's, it's very predictable. And I've seen it happen with people of all different ages and experience levels and seniorities and, and introverts, extroverts. It's just, we're, we're approaching it the wrong way. And so I make this audacious claim. I, I tell people at the beginning of a session, I say, look, I'm going to say something that sounds probably a little bit bonkers, but I'm going to suggest that to the lay person, right? People outside the corporate communications world, I'm going to say, when you think of the term media interview, like if you say, Bob, you have a media interview at four o'clock, I guarantee you that what Bob is thinking of is not in reality what a media interview is. Bob is probably thinking of what he's seen on 60 Minutes or what he's seen in the local newspaper, or maybe he's done a few of these before. And there's that old analogy about, you know, you just see the 5% of the iceberg that's on top of the water. Right. To me, that's what the, the the typical executive or spokesperson thinks a media interview is. And it's so much more than that. And so we go through, and I'll just, I'll list a couple quick examples of this. So something as simple as, the awkward pause. Like I was, I was taught that technique in journalism school. They said, look, you're going to be interviewing a bunch of spokespeople who have been media trained up to the eyeballs. They're going to be probably giving you these, these corporate bureaucratic sounding, not really interesting. You know, we've leveraging the synergies and have a long tradition, you know, that kind of stuff. Party line. Yeah. Yeah. Which is unusable as a journalist. And they said, so they said, look, if you want to do something really interesting to get someone kind of, it just shakes them up. It reboots them and you're going to get more interesting quotes. Let there be a really awkward pause after one of their answers. So again, the person is expecting a certain flow and a cadence. And so they ask, they ask a question, you give an answer, they ask a question, you give an answer. And if the reporter doesn't ask another question after three seconds, four seconds, it's a, it's a reflex. We start to freak out a little bit. We start to panic. And the first thing the person does is they start to talk. It's a conversational habit. And, you know, this happens when you're at a conference and you meet someone and you have that awkward, you know, what do you do? How many kids do you have? Where do you live? You like skiing and you have that awkward pause. And one of you just blurt something out. And when it's a media interview, it's not the second or third or fourth thing on your page. And the other quick, sorry for the long answer, but the other quick example I'll give is, and this is probably the, the, the single most common mistake that people make in their media interviews. And I think it's the single most serious mistake and it's absolutely a conversational habit is that we re we repeat the reporter's words in our answers. And so right. we're in this 25 minute interview, which is about the average length of a, of a print interview. And we think it's going really well and we're sticking to our messages and we're, we got some good sound bites in there and we haven't, you know, stepped in any bear traps or, or done ourselves any, any disservice. We can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel. And then the reporter hits us with a question kind of like this. Mark, how much of a nightmare has this been for your company to deal with? Exactly. And, a trap question. Well, I, I don't even see it as a trap. Like I don't, it's not, you know, I don't think 
my premise is that most journalists, like 97%, I'm just making that up, but like most journalists are not out to get you. And, and the flip side of this is when someone has an interview that goes awry, who do they blame? They blame the journalist. They, they misquoted me. They took me out of context. They, uh, they took my words and twisted them around. Mm-hmm. I had this great quote at the beginning, but they took that stupid thing at the end. They blame the journalist as if there's some malice there. And, and I say to people, look, if you could take your ego out of it, and if you could look at those notes, and if you had to write that story, you'd probably pick the same quote. And so I, I would say that your job as a spokesperson is to be more predetermined, to be more um, disciplined, to be more interesting, to be more succinct. And so to go back to the example of the nightmare, even if you think that's not the case, and there's a great example of this from last summer with Rob Manford, the head of Major League Baseball. They had a positive test on one of the teams. He goes in to talk to ESPN, and the guy says, you know, how much how, how much of a nightmare is a positive test for your league? And the guy, he repeats it twice. He says, well, I, put, I wouldn't put it in the nightmare category and blah, 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 blah. And he answers. And so, so, you know, I wouldn't call it a nightmare. And on one hand, you could say, look, he's just answering the question. He's being, um, he's being uh, an interesting guy. He's being kind of folksy. I say that what ends up happening, and you can, this is the proof is the media coverage. The cameras go off. And the print journalists get that quote and they put it in quotation marks and it is in the headline of every single story. Major League Baseball says it's not a nightmare. Now, funny thing about our human brain, we see the word nightmare, even though he's saying the opposite, it's not a nightmare. All we think of is nightmare and all the connotations. And so from a public relations standpoint, that resulted in hundreds of stories and the word nightmare was in the the headline of each and the first line of every story. And that resulted in millions of eyeballs. And so from a PR standpoint, just the repetition of that word is a huge loss. And so long answer to a, a pretty short question, but if I only had five seconds to prepare someone, I would say, understand that the thing you're getting into is not a conversation, it's a media interview. I wanna go back to something in the clip that is on your website, you talk about there's two different ways to approach a media interview. And one of the positives that you have in there is a very young Steve Jobs in an interview saying, you need to tell me where the restroom is because I'm deathly ill and I'm ready to throw up at any moment. And you list that as a positive approach to a media interview. But I'm going to tell you, when I hear it, I see a little bit of arrogance in him. And I see someone who's not necessarily treating the interview with respect. So explain to me, why do you use that as a positive example? Sure. So for anyone who, want, who wants the, the reference point, you can go to my website, mediatrainingtoronto.com. And uh, if you scroll down, there's this little embedded YouTube video. And it's a couple minutes long. And it's basically, um, uh, for lack of a better word, a commercial. Like, how do you, how would I summarize the, um, one of the biggest problems that I see with organizations is that executives don't know what they don't know, or you can't teach them what they think they already know. That's probably a better way to put it. And so, uh, the the historical thing for me has been, you know, um, Larry is a great, he's really good on his feed. He's a great presenter or or Janice is, is really good with PowerPoint. And so she'll be a natural with media interviews. And there's certainly some overlap, but to me, those are, those are completely different skill sets. And, and so there's, there is an arrogance or there's a, um, and they don't really teach this stuff in business school to the extent that they should. So there are a lot of people, again, they watch 60 Minutes on Sunday, they, they, they see clips on Twitter and they think they can kind of do the same thing, but there's so much more to it to be good at it. And so if you go to my site, I've got these positive clips and these negative clips. So it's basically saying, look, look, you can, you can take it seriously or you can just make it up on the fly. You can put your messages together or you can just kind of look out the window and just be improvising as you go. You can make it about yourself. You know, Tony Hayward, you know, I want my life back, Right. right. 
or you can make it about your audience, which I think is always, always the way to go. If you make it about your audience, it's very difficult to screw up your media interactions. But, but the, the instinct is for most people to go internal and to make it about themselves, even if they're trying not to. And so the Steve Jobs one, to me, yeah, you know, and I, I often ask people, who do you think is great at this? Like, if this session worked really well, and I do, you know, presentation training as well. Steve Jobs and Barack Obama are the two that come up. Yeah, You'll have other people from time to time, you know, Brene Brown or whatever, but you know, those are the two Steve jobs, Elon Musk. And you know, Steve jobs would do his magical keynotes with the, the very slick, but very minimalistic presentations. And uh, he's controlling his own clicker, which I always found to be a fascinating thing. Like he doesn't trust anyone enough. Or he's as much of a control freak or was that he had to have the little thing in his hand. And I, you know, I'm the same way, but mm-hmm. To me, I would say to people, they were judging Steve Jobs on the interviews that he had done from 2007 on, right? So the launch of the, the, uh, the iPhone or even before that, the launch of the iPod, he was, he was having his resurgence and he was, he was the man. But what we forget is how terrible he was at this back in the day. Like nobody is born being a great presenter. No one is born being great at media interviews. And so to me, the way I took this, it's interesting to see your, to hear your reaction, because for me, the Steve Jobs clip, this is a very, very young Steve Jobs. It's one of his first major mainstream media interviews. And he, to me, what I'm seeing is deer in the headlights. He doesn't know, he doesn't know what's doing, what he doesn't know what he's doing. He's looking around, like, where do I look? Where are the lights? And he, he says, basically, I think I'm going to barf because <laughs> yeah, I, to me, that's right, I just yeah. saw I just saw intense nerves and a misunderstanding of this process. And you can compare that with him. You know, you see him on stage with Bill Gates in those two chairs, you know, shooting the breeze. And like, it's a completely transformed guy. And, you know, what I tell people is that what you don't see is the amount of work that he put into that. And I don't need to even, I, I, know, I know he did. And so the only proof that I have is, is in the presentation realm. So everyone says he, he was such a great presenter. And I have a, a series of, photos in my presentation training deck of Steve Jobs on that stage, that famous stage, but the room is empty except for him and a couple of people. I think there's like a producer and one of his tech people. And he's sitting there in a burgundy tracksuit, clicking and practicing. And another one, he's sitting there in a pair of shorts. Like <laughs> these are pictures that you don't see. And I actually had to email a photographer in California to get permission to use that photo in my deck. And, and so what that says to me is these are people who are putting in the reps, putting in the hours. And if Steve Jobs, one of the wealthiest, busiest, most in-demand and kind of crankiest people in the world realized how important it was to prepare for those things, whether it's a media interview or a presentation, I, I would say there's no excuse for anybody to not do it. So that was my rationale for putting that clip in that context. Now, I speak at conferences fairly frequently, several times a year. And when my presentation is ready, you will very easily see me. And I use the word rehearse. I'll rehearse my presentation um, and, you know, speak it right out loud. And, and I think that's a sort of part of your recommendations for being more prepared, isn't it? Absolutely. So um, uh, the, the, the mindset piece is, is tremendous to me. And so I'd say the biggest change between, you know, my early media training days and the ones today are, and, you know, as we're talking, you get older and you see the world a little differently. I'd say the biggest approach change for me has been from tactics and strategies, which are a commodity. You know, you can get that from Google. What are the 10 things I should do in a media interview? You're like, that's, that's, that's not a secret to me. The secret sauce is what mindset should I have? What should I be thinking about this journalist? Like if you go into an interview thinking that the journalist is out to get you, even if your company hasn't done anything wrong, 
well, then that's going to manifest itself in defensive behavior and shorter answers. And then there's this feedback loop that starts because the journalist is like, well, what are they hiding? They must like, he seems really, or she seems very defensive. And so they start digging a little more and it just keeps getting worse. And so we kind of, we kind of psych each other out. And so once you get the mindset piece down and, you know, I, I tell people, look, I, I encourage questions. I encourage criticism. If you want to have a debate about this. And I had a really great one with a, an individual, a scientist. Those are often some of the, the toughest crowd members because they want this to be a science. And I'm like, it's kind of like an art, but if you, if you buy in and figure out how to do it, it's going to serve you well. So once that piece is, is, is taken care of and they've kind of bought in, I tell people that the single most important thing you can do to improve your chances of success in a media interview is to do a practice interview in-house. And so when I say in-house, what I mean is with someone on your team. So it could be someone from your communications team. If you have a large company, if you don't have a large company, it could be someone like yourself, right? You know, you call up a communicator and say, I'd like you to role play an interview. I'm going to be on NBC news at four o'clock today. It's about da, 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 da. Here are the big issues. Here's our company. And you can get, you, you can probably come up with 70 to 80% of the questions that the journalist is going to ask. And you run them through a simulated interview. And then you give them a little bit of feedback. This is the important piece, right? So just running them through an interview is you want to make it realistic in terms of time and stress and questions and follow-up and all of that. But the most important piece is to give them feedback. So you watch the interview and, and this is, it's, it's very, it's a delicate thing, right? How do you give someone feedback that is not going to hurt their feelings, but is actually going to empower them and make them more confident. So you want to you want to talk about what's working. So look, your eye contact was great. Your body language was amazing. Uh, I really like the intention of your your messages. You didn't repeat any negative language. Um, but some of the most common things that I'll see, and there's probably about a half dozen that you'll see just across society. Answers are too long. I'll say, look, you know, the, the TV show you're going on, the typical sound bite on that show is 18 seconds, and you your answers were 45 seconds on average. And so I'm saying, look, can you just scrunch them down a little bit? Um, Many people, I just referenced scientists, scientists for some reason, and I think it's because of the scientific method. When they do a media interview, they want to save their best stuff for the end. They want to kind of build up to their conclusion. And I say in a media interview, that's the exact opposite way you want to do it. You want to start out with your most important point, because not only, first of all, you got your, you got a quote right out of the gate. It will fundamentally change the rest of the interview. If you start with your most important, compelling thesis, the reporter is going to have a different second question. And so you can change the actual interview. And so I've had situations where, you know, I had a, a woman, a founder in the tech space. This is like maybe a decade ago. And she had been a school teacher previously. And so understood that she didn't, she wasn't really good at this. She didn't, like, why would she be? Why would she be great at media interviews? And so we went in, did a full day session. And then like a year later, she got approached to go on, I'd say one of the most high profile business uh, television shows in Canada. And she was, she's, she was 50% terrified and 50% excited. Like this is a huge <laughs> opportunity. I can't not do it, but I'm really concerned about making myself look bad. Like she was one of these people, like just physically ill when she was thinking about this and it's a national audience. Right. And so went into her office, brought a giant camera and the lights and the, the, you know, lavalier microphone and everything. We went, we went through six versions of the show and I went to the effort of, you know, putting our chairs in the same locations that they're going to be and trying to ask the same questions. I watched a couple episodes of the show ahead of time just to get the cadence and the flow and the tone and all of that. And so uh, I would, I, and I, I told her, and you have to have a good relationship with these folks too, right? After the, this, the first interview, I said like, 
that was a four out of 10. Like, and we're kind of like, you know, joking and ribbing. And I said, we well, need to get you up to like a nine, nine and a half. And so every interview we would do a little debrief and we would highlight the things that needed to be fixed. I said, look, you're nodding your head. Every time I'm asking a question, you're nodding ahead. And it's, it's a form of active listening. We do this all the time. You're like, you're what you're signaling to the person who's talking is okay. I hear you. I get it. I, I hear what you're saying. But in a TV interview, it can make it look like you're agreeing with something the reporter is saying when you might not. And so it's just one of those little things that you want to eliminate. Her answers were too long. Um, I was getting her to speculate or go off topic or speak on behalf of other organizations. So when, once you strip all those things away, the interview becomes crystal clear. And when you figure out what your most important message is and you start with that. And so I would, I would really, really, and when I tell people, look, do practice interviews in house, they roll their eyes. Like, what am I? five years old. What am I going to practice? Pretend I'm doing a little interview, but just as you said, you rehearse your presentations. So do I. And mm-hmm. I look, I look like a crazy person. I'm running, I'm walking around, like reciting this out loud, carrying my notes, making hand gestures to nobody. And it, it makes for a better presentation. And so I have this saying, I say your first interview is going to be your worst interview. And yeah. so why would you ever do it with the journalist? Get a little bit of feedback you're better off doing it with your spouse. Or if you have a, um, like a, like a, like a child who's like, you know, in their teens or older, grab the iPhone, give me an interview, give me some feedback or give yourself some feedback, but it is, is imperative. It's the single biggest thing people can do to improve the quality of their interviews is to do a practice and, and do a, an honest assessment of how they did and call an audible and make some changes in real time. One of the things that I've found to be most beneficial by running some practices is you know, sometimes you'll think of something that you think might come off as funny, or you might have an impromptu or ad lib comment. And when you say it in practice, you realize, oh, that was yeah. stupid. Yeah. And you know what, if you're going to be stupid, be <laughs> stupid in private. And, and, you know, then you can delete that out. And you don't, when, when you get the impulse to say that live, you're like, no, no, no. Uh, mm-hmm. I tried that once and I'm not going back there. That wasn't good. So so it's very interesting because you spent a lot of time talking about um, sort of the soft skills around the interview. I want to get into the messaging a little bit. You talk about having a plan and having a bulletproof set of messages. Let me start with this. What makes a set of messages bulletproof? So this, and this has been a revelation to me over the years as well, because everyone has always considered that the simulated interview part of a media training session is like the, that's like the, the fireworks show. Like that's the thing that everyone's building up to. And what I've realized over the years is when it's done properly, the, actually the most important part of a media training session is the part in the middle. So it starts out for anyone who's never been through one before you have, you know, and different people are going to do it different ways, but basically you have, you have some theory up front. Like this is how you do it. This is how you don't do it. And hopefully it's got some videos and some examples and, and it's entertaining. The last piece is the simulated interviews. And so you have someone running you through it, role playing as if it's real recording it so they can share it with you afterward and provide feedback. The chunk in the middle is to provide each participant with a hypothetical interview topic, depending on their company, right? And it could be contentious, could be whatever, could be positive, could be, it doesn't really matter what the scenario is, but it's got to be realistic and have enough meat to kind of grab onto it and, you know, dates and times and different elements that make it kind of messy, like real life. I give people about 10 or 11 minutes. I say, grab your pens and write out your first draft of what you, you think your messages should be for this interview. And their first reactions, that's not enough time. I'm like, Exactly. So they go through the 10 minutes and then we spend about 15 to 20 minutes per person 
doing a deep dive on their proposed content. And I can tell you that the first draft of those messages is usually about 40 to 50% of where it needs to be. It's there's some good stuff in there, but it's a little, it's a little off. And, and you realize that this is the stuff that people are going and doing media interviews with. And this is why we have some of these problems. And so to answer the question, the things that your messages need to have to be what I call bulletproof. I'm not even sure that's a politically correct word anymore these days. So I'm going to have to change that, but fair point. it needs to have what I call motive or intention. It's not just 10,000 foot BS messaging from your company. It has to relate to the audience. And so whatever the topic of the story is, your messages need to relate to the topic and relate to your audience. So what's in it for them? Is there a call to action? Is there a benefit? Is there something they, they need to know? And that's the biggest thing that's usually missing. If it is a crisis situation, well, I guess if, if, if it's an issue or a crisis, are we addressing the elephant in the room? And so this is a human reflex again, where a company's dealing with a contentious issue, they're doing a media interview, and they think subconsciously, I think it's subconsciously sometimes, that if I don't address the negative thing, like the thing that everyone knows, and but we haven't spoken about it, it's like the Voldemort and Harry Potter, you don't want to say it, right? If we avoid talking about the elephant in the room, it won't come up. And so that makes you sound insensitive, like you're not empathetic, and it makes the interview go in a, in a negative direction. And so I'm like right out of the gate, if there's an elephant in the room, please introduce it. If there's an apology that's owed, introduce it. Like, I really believe that the viewer or reader or listener, depending on the format, has this checklist in their mind of the things they want that company to say or the things that that company should say in a given situation. And it's up to us to kind of hit those marks unprovoked on our own. Like, even if we didn't have questions from the journalist, we should be able to hit these things in, in a specific order. And, and one of the biggest ones is really, and I talked about this earlier, it's about the audience. So <clears throat> there's a fundamental misalignment I find with most, and I would say most media interviews that take place. If I ask you, who is the journalist trying to serve? What would your answer to that be? Well, my first reaction, if I'm honest, is themselves. They're looking for a zinger. <laughs> okay. In a, in a perfect world, who's the who's the reporter trying to serve? Uh, uh, their reader or listener. Right. So I love your answer, though. So <laughs> the reporter is trying. The reporter is trying to serve the audience, right? And so, and again, yes, there are bad reporters out there, but most of them are just trying to do their jobs, which is a difficult job. It was. It's always been difficult. It's more difficult today. The spokesperson is, and, and this is just, again, human nature for people who don't understand what a media interview is. They see it and it's either, if it's a positive story, it's a PR exercise. And if it's a negative story, it's damage control. And so those are both very self-serving agendas. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. As a human being, I get it. You have a company, you have shareholders, you have employees, there's all these layers, you have a boss, da da da, da. But the problem is when you're, when your sole intention with the interview is self-serving, there is going to be a fundamental misalignment because the reporter can smell that hundred feet away. And so what I ask people to do is I say, just change your approach by eight or nine degrees and just make it about the audience. If you service your audience, what ends up happening is first of all, the reporter is going to feel like, okay, this we're, we're in, we're in the same groove. We're serving the same audience. And Ultimately, you're going to have a shorter interview. I think you're going to have better quotes 
And then what you end up doing, if you can do this properly, if you can serve the audience through your media interviews, if that's your primary objective is to serve the audience, the byproduct of that is the things we talked about earlier. It makes your company look better or you end up doing proper damage control in a crisis situation. So those those self-serving things I see as a byproduct of a great media interview, not the intention or the objective of it. And so it's a, it's a, again, it's a slight mind game, but for people to kind of wrap their, their heads around that. And so, uh, and, and of course they need to be the right length. And so this is one of the most fun things that I tell people in our sessions. They'll say like, how long should my answers be? And I say, okay, well, the answer is I could, I can make up some, some, you know, 18.4 seconds. Like, I don't know, but I say the answer is hiding out in plain sight. I, and then I ask them, I say, give me the name of a media outlet that you might do an interview with in the next six months. And they give me like the name of the local paper, you know, the Toledo Blade, or it could be a radio station or a TV show. And I say, okay, go, go, you can go or get someone on your team to go and look for 10 quotes from that, that's that, that show or that paper or whatever in the last couple of weeks, find 10 random quotes from spokespeople and look at how long they were. So if it's on TV or radio, look at it in terms of seconds. And if it's in print, look at the number of words. And <clears throat> I have this, this theory that every news outlet has, and I call it like a news hole. It's not a very fancy term, but like, imagine if you took a full page of a newspaper and you deleted all the quotes, you'd have all these little white spaces throughout the paper. Mm-hmm. How long are those? And so each media outlet has has that kind of just baked in. I don't think they, they, they quantify it or, or even consciously talk about it, but it's there. And so for example, and I'm going to use a couple of Toronto examples again, but we have a business show, a business news network here. And I had a client going on a certain show with a certain host and I went and I grabbed my stopwatch and I found 10 quotes from people the previous week. And it's more of a sit down chit chat at a desk kind of financial trends and things like that. And I found that the average quote was 41 seconds long, longer than I thought. Mm-hmm. And there's a show called Breakfast Television. You probably have something similar in your area, like the morning people, super caffeinated, you know, and these short segments, three or four minutes with a couple of guests, one or two guests. And the average length of a quote was 21 seconds long. And so these are really important. Like, I'm not saying every one of your answers needs to clock in at exactly that, but I'm saying this is a guideline. So some of your answers may be three words, but you don't want to really go outside that 20 second or the 40 second, you know, what you, you want to work with what, and so if you take your most important content, we talked about earlier, like what's, what's the most important thing I need to get across and it's connected to my audience. How can I say it in an interesting way that is a hundred percent factual. And you might use, you know, anecdotes, stories, stats, statistics, whatever. And then if you can make it the right length for the journalist that they don't need to do any editing, it will just, it, it, it will stand out for them. Right. They will be looking at their notes or listening to the tape and it will just jump off the page. And so what you want to do, you want to take your most important information and you want to wrap it up in a way that is irresistible for the journalist and also serves your audience. And to me, that's the secret of a great media interview. Warren, I'll get you out of here on this. How can people get in touch with you? What's the best way to reach you? Oh, um, Follow me on Twitter, I guess, at uh, Warren underscore weeks. It's not super exciting. It's mostly media relations stuff. And with the occasional picture of a dog or uh, an, uh, an old sports car, but um, that's, that's, that's probably the best way. And uh, my website again is mediatrainingtoronto.com. Good. And we'll put links to all of that in the show mm-hmm. notes too. So Warren, I appreciate you. You know what the, the hardest part of doing a podcast interview is for me is I wish we had more time. I, I, I intentionally make the Resilient Journey podcast in the 25 to 30 minute range. And I feel like we could talk all day about this. And um, 
you know, we'll, we'll have to have you back. There's, there's still more to cover. Love to, for sure. Thanks for having me on, Mark. A big thanks to Warren Weeks for being my guest on this episode of The Resilient Journey. And a huge shout out to our sponsor, ClearRisk. The ClearRisk centralized risk management solution streamlines data collection and decision making. Check them out at clearrisk.com. We wrap up our series on crisis communication next time as we speak with Diane Chase from Chase Media. Diane will help you craft an effective business story, and she reminds us that people do business with people, not with companies. You won't want to miss this fascinating conversation. So join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.